Hey, good morning as well, <laughs> as I throw things at you. Uh, first Sunday in November. It's November. It's November. Is that hitting you? Anyone get thrown off by the change in time today? This is a safe, graceful place. You can, you can admit this, confess this. Uh, my youngest was still up at the same exact time, which meant an hour earlier, so I have no extra sleep. So I have no compassion or pity on you at all in this moment. But I'm glad you're here. This is a good place to be this morning. Uh, goal for my time in worship is to lead us to communion, to the communion table as we fellowship with Jesus Christ, remembering what he has done and going to the cross for our sake, to take care of our sins. And so that's where we're heading today. But before we jump completely into it, I want to acknowledge something that's happened within our neighborhood and in our community, and I want to just lead us into a moment of prayer. And that is, Tim mentioned, Light the Night was here. We had like 5,000 people here on the church campus. Such a wonderful night. But about two and a half miles down Tustin and then left on Fairhaven, there was a tragedy that happened about 6.45 Friday night. And that was, there was three teenage girls, two twin sisters and their friend, just crossing the street to go trick-or-treating, and they were hit and killed by a car. It was two and a half miles from this spot. And my heart and our hearts collectively grieve for their families right now. It's the Perez family and the Gonzalez family. And I'm even looking at what are ways that we could get involved in just ushering compassion to them. They're in our realm of influence here. But I wanted, us to lead, I wanted to lead us just in a time of prayer for their families as we begin just this time here. There's a thought that comes into my mind, and I know it comes into yours when you hear about tragedies, and that is, why do good things happen, or why do bad things happen to good people? And why do we hear so many times about young people's lives tragically getting cut short? Like, God, where are you in all of this? And in this context, where I'm the only one speaking, and you have to just listen, it's hard to unpack all of that in that question. But what I can simply say is this, is that sin has entered into our world. The human condition is impacted, infected by sin. The fall of man has made this a place where we experience death and tragedy and loss. And each of us, whether it's through being reminded of or even knowing someone that was killed on Friday night, or even in our own lives as we live our lives, we are touched by this reality that sin has entered the world and there's all kinds of consequences because of it. And yet, as believers in Jesus Christ, we acknowledge the reality that sin has entered the world, but we also acknowledge the reality that Jesus has entered the world. And the gospel tells us that Jesus says, I have come into this world to overcome it. So take heart when you experience loss and tragedy and death. And so maybe you're experiencing your own tragedy in your life right now. And I want to even plank it a prayer over you. But let's just go before the Lord as a church family and let's pray right now. Father, I just want to lift up the Perez family as they've lost two daughters and the Gonzalez family as they've lost a, a young girl who's had so much life to live. God, I pray that you would comfort them by your Holy Spirit, that 
they would see that although they've encountered death in such a realistic and hard way, that they also would encounter you as the incarnate Savior come into our world. Give them peace. Give them some form of victory when they look to you. And God, I pray for any of us that are experiencing our own tragedies and loss at this moment. God, may even this time here today be a time where we intersect with the Savior who's come into our world and proclaims, I have overcome. So this is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. We look to the word for comfort and truth. And so turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you start in the New Testament, you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and then you hit 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 5. If you go to Galatians, you've gone too far. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, come back. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And once you get there, turn to verse 17. If you need a Bible, there are some in the seat rack in front of you. I was using one of those seat rack Bibles until about 30 minutes ago. I found my Bible. I haven't seen this thing in three weeks. I didn't know where it went. I'm a pastor about to teach. I don't know where my Bible is. So if you've lost your Bible, you are in good company at this moment. Um, But I found it 30 minutes ago. I was like, I found it. Um, And so if you don't have a Bible, if you're in the process of looking for it, you find it in the seat in front of you. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says these great words. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Wonderful, wonderful words here. Place in First Peter and then also in the Old Testament, Isaiah, it says, The grass, grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so this first century text applies to our life here today. These are life-giving truths that we see unpacked here in 2 Corinthians 5. It's the idea that as a follower of Jesus, you've been reconciled to him. And that's the story we're going to get into today with a guy named John Mark that his life was reconciled to God and then out of that was reconciled to others. It's a miracle when someone's reconciled to God. The word reconciled basically means to be restored, to be brought back. But not just brought back, it means to be restored, brought back to favor with all the rights and blessings of someone who had what they had before in a sense. And so when you've been reconciled to God, you've been brought back, you've been restored, you inherit all the spiritual blessings that God intended you to have before sin entered the world. It's wonderful. 
This is the story of the follower of Jesus. About six days ago, our three-year-old was getting ready for bed. And he began to complain to my wife, Marie. He's like, I'm scared. I'm scared. Which is very common for three-year-olds trying to stay up an extra few minutes. And uh, my wife goes, you don't have to be scared. God's with you. God's with you. And then my three-year-old, his name's Seth, he goes, no, he's not. God's not with me. And then me, being the pastor father, jump in, and I'm like, no, no, God is with you. Like, God's with you, Seth. You don't have to be scared. And he looks at me with all the sincerity of a three-year-old, and he goes, God, God's not with me. My nine-year-old daughter jumps in and starts preaching the gospel to the three-year-old, saying, you need to accept Jesus into your heart. <laughs> and she just begins going for it. Greg Laurie would be proud at the Harvest Crusade of how she's communicating to Seth. And then Seth looks at her. This is just hilarious if you know his personality. He goes, okay, fine. <laughs> I'll accept Jesus, all right. Which, ironically, has how many of us have come to Christ, huh? You're at the end of your rope and you're like, okay, fine. I get it, God. I have nowhere else to turn. I surrender my will to you. And so this was three-year-old Seth in that moment. And so then me and Marie start, no, don't, don't just accept Jesus because we're telling you to. We're putting pressure on you. Like, no, I mean, you're going to have enough pressure in your life as a pastor's kid. Like, just relax. This is okay. And, uh, and then he looks at us and he goes, no, I, I, I want to do this. And so we pray with little three-year-old Seth. And we say, Jesus, come into my life. I know I've sinned against you. To hear a three-year-old say that is just, it's powerful, it's sobering, it's true. I, I need you to come in my life, be the savior, the rescuer of my life. And so Seth prays this a couple nights ago. And then we called uh, Marie's parents and Seth gets on the phone. He's like, I'm a Christian. <laughs> They're like, yeah. And it's so great. We're just celebrating this. And I don't know. Maybe it's just a seed. Maybe it's not the actual conversion. But, but what a cool moment for him to walk through and for us to walk through with him. Whether you're three years old or you're 30 or you're within an hour of your last breath, when someone places their faith in Jesus and they're reconciled, restored to Jesus, it's a miracle. It's awesome. We celebrate that. No way. You've been reconciled to the God of holiness. The God who created everything that we see here. You've been reconciled to him, not through what you've done, but simply who you've trusted in, which is Jesus. It's just, it's a miracle. And then out of that, this passage here in 2 Corinthians says, you've been saved, you've been made new, you've been restored, and now... You're called to be an ambassador of reconciliation. There's a couple steps to this as you read the text. One is you're called to tell others, to proclaim to others as an ambassador that Jesus is the way to be reconciled to God. An ambassador means a representative. And so you're called to be a representative in the places that you live and go and work and play. To be this ambassador for Jesus. We're called to do that. tell others, proclaim to others this is how you're restored. It's Jesus. It's what he did on the cross. But then there's a secondary thing that we're called to do is these reconciled ones. And that is to pursue reconciliation 
with other people. Because frankly, it's really hard to be an ambassador for Jesus if you have unreconciled, broken relationships in your life. How do you tell a skeptic person, yeah, I've been reconciled to God. All my relationships are a complete mess, but I've been reconciled to God. And there's a, there's a disconnect there, and it's obvious to everyone. And so we're called as ambassadors of Christ to first of all be reconciled to God through Jesus, and then to pursue reconciliation with other people. One of my heroes over the last five or six years has been a pastor out of Manhattan, New York, named Tim Keller. And Keller writes about this so well. He says, Christians in community are never to give up on one another, never give up on a relationship, never write off another believer. We must never tire of forgiving and repenting and seeking to repair our relationships. Some of you need to tune out the rest of my message because the Spirit of God wants to challenge you that you are called to reconcile with someone here today. You are called to pursue reconciliation as a follower of Jesus. I give you permission to tune out and begin to think through how you're going to do that. For others of us, though, it's a process of asking, okay, God, who are you calling me to reconcile with? Or even to thank him, God, who have you reconciled me with in the past? Here, as Paul writes 2 Corinthians 5, he wrote this in about 55 AD. Ten years earlier, he had had a falling out with a guy named Barnabas. And that was a result of a falling out that Paul had had with a guy named John Mark. And I want you to hear a couple snapshots of their story because as Paul's writing 2 Corinthians 5, I have no doubt that he's thinking about what had happened between him and John Mark. And so turn from 2 Corinthians 5 and go backwards to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Acts 12 serves as this great bridge between the first 11 chapters of Acts, which detail the ministry of Peter and the early disciples. Acts 12 is this bridge, and then after Acts 12, you're going to be reading and following the life and leadership of a guy named Paul. And so Acts 12 kind of sits as the hinge point between the two men, Peter and Paul. In Acts 12, you read about Peter being arrested, not for anything that he had done, but simply for proclaiming the name of Jesus in a hostile place. And so Peter is in prison, chained to two guards on either side of him. And as you read here in Acts chapter 12, a miraculous thing happens. Look at verse 7 of Acts 12. It says, And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And in verse 8, the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Verse 9, And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a dream. So Peter is chained up in prison, not only in prison, but potentially facing the death penalty. He's thinking, okay, I guess this is how it's going to end for me. And then the angel of the Lord shows up, breaks the chains, rescues him, and takes him out of prison. And Peter at some points thinks like, is this just a dream? Am I going to wake up from this? And then he realizes it's true. It actually is happening. 
And then scroll down to verse 12 of Acts 12. 12, 12. It says, And when he, this is Peter, realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And then you can read on your own. There's this hilarious story where Peter knocks on the door and the servant lady opens the door and she doesn't believe it's really Peter. So she closes it and then heads upstairs to tell everybody. And he's still outside knocking like, I've just been rescued and no one will let me in. And anyways, maybe it's funny for me, but um, you can read more about it later. But I want you to see here in Acts 12, 12 that there's this guy named John Mark that's introduced to the story. John was his Jewish name and it means grace of God. Mark was his Roman name. And I love this. It means hammer. So you have a guy that's all about the grace of God, and he's a hammer. So put those two things together. Throughout the scriptures, he's referred to sometimes just as John, sometimes just as Mark. But I want you to get here this morning that his name is John Mark. And he lived a pretty incredible life. I want to see, show you a couple of things. 12.12. Now go down to verse 25. says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So this guy, John Mark, he, his mother is a Christian. In fact, her name, Mary, there's a lot of Marys in the Bible, she's hosting this prayer gathering. They're praying for the release of Peter. There's a large house because there's a lot of Christians that are gathered there. So we can take from that that this woman, Mary... Uh, probably had some wealth that she had a large enough house to house all these people. And we know that she was all in for the cause of Jesus. Why? Because she was willing to host a prayer gathering in a place that was really hostile at that moment to Christianity and the things of Jesus. And so this is John Mark's mom. She's all in for Jesus Christ. He has this heritage about him. We also know, reading the scriptures, that John Mark's cousin, potential uncle, it's hard to exactly say, it's one of his family members, was named Barnabas, who was also one of the first century leaders. And so he's got Barnabas in his family. His mom is with him. He has this Christian heritage about him. And, verse 25, he goes and hangs out with Paul and Barnabas. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, we read that Peter calls John Mark his son. And so Peter has this close kinship relationship to this guy, John Mark. Okay, so are you following this? So John Mark is discipled and mentored by a mom who's all in for the cause of Jesus, by Peter, the leader of the early church, by Barnabas, his cousin, son of encouragement, leader in the church, and he gets to hang out with Paul. And then we read in Mark 14, that's potentially Mark, was in the garden the night that Jesus was arrested. There's this really weird, obscure passage where it says a man ran away from the garden and someone grabbed his cloak and he ran away naked. And there's some that think that was John Mark. And so he was discipled by the best of the best. He had a great heritage that poured into him. He potentially was in the garden the night that Jesus was betrayed. This was his life. It's great. And from that, I take this. As a follower of Jesus, discipleship's a key component. It's helpful to have people pouring into you. That's what we talked about uh, in September. And even just a little return to that. 
Are you currently being discipled by someone? Maybe it's not Paul or Peter, but is there someone that's pouring into you as you follow Jesus? You need that on this journey. And then the flip side of that is, are you pouring into somebody? Do you have someone or people that you're mentoring and caring for, encouraging and challenging? We need both of those components in the Christian life. John Mark was poured into incredibly. And then you read in, in Acts 13. Go to Acts 13, 5. It says, When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. And so John Mark takes this incredible discipleship from the leaders of the Christian movement, and he goes out. And it says that he's a helper with Paul and Barnabas as they become missionaries once again. And so John Mark is an early first century missionary. It's great. Poured into, and now he begins to pour in to others along the way. And then something happens. And I want you to get this point, is that as a follower of Jesus, you are not immune to failures. John Mark had this incredible Christian heritage, incredible people pouring into him, and yet he fails. Look at Acts 13 from verse 5. Go down to verse 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Just that little line right there. It says, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. What happened? Why did he leave? We don't know exactly. We don't know the whole situation, the context of, of why he just left this missionary journey all of a sudden here in Acts 13, 13. But what we do know is that Paul was really upset about it, that Paul felt betrayed by it. So go from Acts 13 and do another snapshot. Go over to Acts 15. In Acts 15, verse 37... And it says in Acts 15.37, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. Verse 38, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And so there becomes this point of tension between Barnabas, who wants to take John Mark on their next journey. What they're going to do is they're going to go revisit the churches that they've already planted and go encourage the believers, these brand new believers who had been established, these leaders in these new places. And so he wanted to take John Mark with him. Barnabas did. But Paul here says, no way. That guy deserted me. The original word deserted, it's in your notes, but um, I actually typed it out wrong, so I made a mistake there. So the correct translation of this is fall away. Similar, but a little different. It means fall away. So Paul is saying, hey, no way I'm going to take this guy because he fell away. What did he fall away from? Did he fall away just from his passion for missions? Did he fall away completely just from God? Did he walk away from God? We don't know exactly. But it was enough where Paul remembered that and didn't want anything to do with this guy, John Mark. A great background doesn't make us immune from failure. I think of Billy Graham. And I think of Billy Graham's son, Franklin. Franklin, when he was a teenager, 
He said, it wasn't that I didn't believe in God, but it was more like I just didn't see a need for God. I just wanted to have fun with my life and just experience life. And so Franklin began some addictions and alcohol and smoking and uh, ended up just kind of walking his own path until he got to college. And his first college he got to, he got kicked out. Can you imagine being like the dean of that college and you call up Billy Graham? Hey, uh, Billy, uh, your son, um, he needs to leave. <laughs> like, what would that conversation be like? And Franklin had this great heritage of a mom and a dad who loved Jesus, lived it out, poured into him, and yet Franklin didn't want to follow that. So if it can happen to Billy Graham, it can happen for any of us as we pour into others and potentially even raise kids. And one even just thought I had on that as I was thinking through Billy's story and Franklin's story was that if you're a parent in this room who is experiencing at this moment a son or a daughter who's walked away from God, I just want to encourage you with a couple things. One is grace. I think at times as a parent you can beat yourself up for if I only would have done this, if I hadn't have done that, then my kid would have turned out differently. I just want to give you grace right from the Lord. The Lord ushers you grace in that. And also I want to encourage you to persevere. I've had a mom here at Calvary who for the last four or five years has been praying for her son to come back to Jesus. Praying and praying and thinking through how... What can I do to help this guy just connect with God? Last Sunday, he came to Calvary. He had this huge smile on his face, and he's like, I've been running for a long time, but I'm done running. And I've come back to him. He goes, I, can't, I went to this church in Orange County, and they were speaking on the prodigal son story. He's like, it was just such a random coincidence, and I knew that the message was for me. And so I just surrendered my life in that moment. He's here last Sunday, and we're just like, yes, that's awesome. Just embracing his mom and just saying, persevere. And continue to persevere. And so if you're a parent who's experiencing just a child who's not walking with God, grace and perseverance, I hope those two things are just part of how you walk through life with this right now. For Franklin Graham, uh, it was 22. He was only 22, but he got on his knees and he's finally surrendered to God. And he said, I'm going to follow you with all that I am. And now Franklin is leading his dad's ministry and Samaritan's Purse, which we're a part of this month, and, and doing amazing things. Uh, I mean, yet, no one is immune from falling away, from failure. It can happen for any of us at any time, no matter the background. So this is John Mark. So follower of Jesus, we're not immune from that. Verse 39 of Acts 13 says this. It says, And through him... Let me get to 15. <laughs> 1539. Sorry to through, draw you. It says, And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Verse 40. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Verse 41. And he was traveling through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So this guy, John Mark, falls away. Barnabas wants to bring him again on the next journey. Paul says, no way. That guy deserted me. He's not going with us. There's such a sharp disagreement between Barnabas and Paul that it causes the very first church split in the history of Christianity. Barnabas goes one way. Saul, Paul goes another. 
It's a sad moment in the history of the church. And logic would tell us in this moment that that's the last we'll hear of John Mark. Yeah, John Mark, that guy will be known as the guy that broke up the dynamic duo of Barnabas and Paul. He's the guy that fell away. He's the deserter. And that's all we'll know about John Mark. But that's not where the story ends. This is who our God is. Is God is the great restorer, healer, and reconciler. John Mark's story does not end in Acts chapter 15. Go from Acts 15 and now go all the way over to Colossians chapter 4. Go past the Corinthian books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then you hit Colossians chapter 4. Look at this. This is Paul writing, Colossians 4.10. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So about 10 years has passed from Acts 15 now to Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. 10 years. We don't know the circumstances of how John, Mark, and Paul were reconciled. We do have a guess that Peter and Barnabas were probably a part of it because Peter continued to pour in and care for and disciple John Mark. And this guy Peter, I don't know if you know, but he's had a few failures himself. And so he knew how to encourage this guy. Barnabas, nicknamed the son of encouragement, I'm sure he used that gifting to encourage his cousin. And so he had that help along the way. Maybe those two guys were instrumental in Paul and John Mark coming back together. I don't know. But all we know is this, is that there was reconciliation between the two of them. Paul, in this moment, Colossians 4.10, he's in prison. So he's writing from prison. And he's saying, this guy, John Mark, he's been helpful to me. Probably means John Mark has come and visited him in prison. It's amazing. It's a testimony of restoration, of healing, of reconciliation. Okay, go from Colossians 4. Now go over to 2 Timothy. It's in the T books, the New Testament, to your right. Or 1 Timothy, I'm sorry. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And once you get to 1 Timothy, go to 2 Timothy. <laughs> Just testing you right now, okay? The computer makes its autocorrect. <laughs> Or maybe it's me. 2 Timothy 4.9 says this, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present word, world, has, look at that word, deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Look at verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you. For he is useful to me for service. This is awesome. There's been a reconciliation between Paul and this guy, John Mark. A miracle. One that only our God could do. As a follower of Jesus, please understand this. That Jesus is our great restorer, healer, and reconciler. He does it. Today, in fact, at this very moment, Prodigal Church is having their second preview service in Irvine. Prodigal is a church plant from us here at Calvary Church. The whole purpose of Prodigal Church is to communicate this message 
to the people of Orange County and specifically to the people of Irvine. It's to communicate that we want to be a church where you can receive restoration and healing and reconciliation, not through us, but through Jesus. This is the message of this brand new church plant, their second preview service, right at this moment. And one of the guys leading this new church plan, maybe many of you know him, Brent Dedman. Brent's life is a testimony to this, that Jesus brings restoration, healing, and reconciliation. Brent stood on this very stage like four years ago and had to confess that he had entered into a relationship with a woman who was not his wife. And it was destroying him and his wife and our church. And he got up here and said, this is who I am. I don't know what's going to happen. And I throw myself on God's mercy. And now we are several years later. And God has been in the process of bringing healing and reconciliation and restoration to Brent's life and to his wife and their marriage. In fact, Brent and Patty are pregnant right now with their first child. And it's just awesome. That's testimony to God. God does things like this. When the world would say, there's no way a young married couple could ever survive something like this, God says, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to do something. And that's what God's doing in the story of Prodigal, the story of Brent and, and Patty and, and this brand new church happening right now. Two weeks ago, out at the chapel across the courtyard here, I had the privilege to marry a couple named Jesus and Soraya. It was a wonderful time. Uh, wedding, all the trappings and excitement of a couple excited to get married, ready to get married. The background to their story is really interesting, though, because Jesus and Soraya three years ago were married, and they got divorced. And they went their separate ways. And it looked like their relationship was beyond repair. Two weeks ago, they're standing before God, recommitting their lives to one another. That's just our God. God is in the business of restoration, of reconciliation. There's an order to it, though. First, you've got to be reconciled to God. You've got to repent of your sins and turn towards Jesus Christ. But then out of that, God does beautiful things, bringing reconciliation between people, between brothers and sisters in Christ, in churches, and in marriages. This is the wonderful story that we get to proclaim. This was John Mark's story. So he's restored. Paul says, he's useful to me. He's helpful to me. And then I want you to turn to the book of Mark. Turn to Mark chapter 10. And look at verse 45. With your Bible or your smartphone, whatever you have, who's this book, who's this book written by? Just audience participation. This is Mark, right? Guess what? This is the John Mark that Acts talks about. This is the John Mark that split the early church. This is the John Mark who was restored. In God's economy and in God's heart, he says, I am going to proclaim that I am the great reconciler by not only restoring this guy, John Mark, to ministry, 
but I'm going to invite him and commission him through the power of the Holy Spirit to write the gospel of Mark. It's incredible. This is our God. This is what he does. Not only in John Mark's life, but in your life and my life too. Look at John 10, 45. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I want to just walk us towards communion right now. Jesus has reconciled us by not coming in this world to be served, but instead to be the servant king, to come in and to serve us. Not because he had to or because we deserved it, but simply out of grace. This is our Jesus. This is our Messiah. This is our Savior. And he's come into this world to give up his life for you and for me. So as we prepare to take communion, first ask yourself, have I been reconciled to Jesus? Have I placed my faith in Jesus Christ once and for all? I've said, Jesus, I'm tired of running. I make you the Savior, the forgiver of my sins. And I want you to be the leader, the master of my life. Have you personally done that? Not your family member, not anyone else, but you. Have you personally done that? If you have, you are reconciled to God through Christ. Communion is for you to remember what Jesus has done. If you want to, I encourage you in this moment, just like Seth Invite Jesus into your life. Say, Jesus, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. Come in my life. Be my Savior, my Lord. Make that your prayer this morning. Communion will be for you. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if you have a problem with your brother, or better yet, if your brother has a problem with you, leave the altar and go make that right before you come and worship. And I want to challenge us as we prepare our hearts for communion. Maybe you are reconciled to God through Jesus, but maybe there's a relationship right now that's not reconciled. And I want to encourage you as you take communion, maybe today that means passing communion and not taking it, but instead saying, and not as a punishment, but instead saying, I want to go make this right before I take this. Maybe you need to go out in the lobby and text somebody, Maybe you need to leave this place and drive to their house right now. Maybe you need to start working and crafting an email that you would send out later today. But I challenge you, this is important stuff as we consider what Jesus has done. So pray with me right now. Father, thank you that you are the God of restoration, healing, and reconciliation. Those words can seem distant from us until we need them. God, thank you that as followers of Jesus, we've recognized our great need for you to do these type of things in our lives. So God, as we take communion right now, may we be reflective, contemplative, sober, and also joyful for what you've done. In Christ's name. Amen.